0: Mark chapter number 6 and verse number 1. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him? that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? Are not these his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could do there no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went around about the villages teaching. And he called unto him the twelve and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no script, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on t- two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever you enter into a house, there abide till you depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart thence, shake off the dust of your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for, for that city. And when they went out and preached, the men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. And so now if this was a movie, we'd cut the scene and we go over to a different location. And then we'd show up in the palace. And now we're in a new scene, a new location. And when King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said, that is Elias. Others said, that is a prophet, or one is a prophet. But but when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. And so now we have a flashback. So now we're going to go back in time and find out what Herod's talking about. Because up until this point chapter 1 tells us John was in prison and that's the last we hear about John the Baptist so now we, we find out what happened to him in this new scene and now we to flash back and get the backstory: of what happened for Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' Herodias's sake his brother Philip's wife for he had married her for John had said unto Herod it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him but she could not For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and a holy man, and observed him. And when he heard him, did many things, and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in, and danced, and pleased Herod, and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I'll give it to thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, and I will give it to thee, and to the half of my kingdom. When well, she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? She said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king, and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by, in the charger, the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his own sake, and for the sakes of which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded that his head be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in the charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. And so now, in the flashback, in the scene in Jerusalem, so now we go back to Jesus. verse 30, And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus. So he sent them out, and now they're coming back. And he told them all the things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while, for there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And so today I'm going to be preaching about unbelief. Um, We see unbelief in Nazareth. We see unbelief in the palace. And the this, this story goes back and forth between those two scenes. You have unbelief then Jesus sending out the twelve. Then we have a, a new scene with Herod and a flashback. And we have unbelief there and the consequences of it. Then we go back to where we were with Jesus, with the disciples having gone out, finished their mission, coming back and telling Jesus what started now Mark has a reason why he tells a story this way it, it connects all these things so uh, you might not tell a story this way some people tell stories different ways Luke likes to tell a story he'll say this happened and this happened and this happened and then on to the next thing but Mark will start a story jump to another one tell that story and then jump back to the one he started with but when he does that He's, he's, weaving, um, he's weaving something together to, to make a point. And so, uh, what is the point here? Well, um, as we go on, I believe we'll see how all these things are connected. The Gospel of Mark actually begins with John the Baptist crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. And we understand from the very beginning, John is God's prophet. And he comes in the name of the Lord, preaching the word of God, as prophesied in the Old Testament, announcing the Messiah is coming. So John preaches as God told him. He baptizes him as God directed him and declares, one is coming, one who I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Jesus comes, is baptized by John god declares audibly this is my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased the spirit visibly descends upon jesus so jesus is the father and the son of the spirit testify this is the beloved son of god who has come uh, to take away the sin of the world jesus goes out into the wilderness and defeats satan and then in mark 1 14 it says now after that john was put in prison Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And then, right after that, Jesus calls his first disciple. Then, Mark takes off like a, a rocket. In the first five chapters, Jesus goes and, and heals and teaches in the synagogue. And people are astonished at his, his authority and as, astonished at his power over unclean spirits, over sicknesses. He does things that people can't believe. And, and he starts, people are following him. And he, great multitudes are coming to him and pressing against him that he can't even get through. And people, uh, you know, remember they had to lower the, the guy in through the roof because they couldn't even get close to the house. And so the trajectory thus far is that more and more people are believing. Chapter 5, you have that great chapter of faith where you have the healing of, of the man that was possessed of, of legions. You have uh, Jairus with great faith that Jesus could heal his daughter and he raised her from the dead. You had the woman with the issue of blood who had great faith just to touch his garment and she would be saved. So you're seeing that it looks like He's taken the world by storm and 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 everyone's going to believe. But then chapter six, it takes a stark turn and and things start there's an ominous feel. Instead of great things being met by faith, you see these he's rejected. Instead of calling his disciples to come to him, he's now sending them out to do the work of God in his name. And now we find out what happened to John the Baptist. He was not met with joy. He was not met with honor. But he met with the prophet's fate. Jesus' mission started when John was imprisoned. And now we see the disciples' mission starting with John's death. And this whole section takes an ominous tone that the message of the gospel of of God, the message to repent and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that God has called all men to repent, to trust in Christ, is not going to be met with joy but hostility in this dark world. And though there are some that do believe, we see that the truth is not universally accepted but just about universally rejected. And so we begin with unbelief in Nazareth. So Jesus demonstrated all that miraculous power in chapter 5. So he comes back home. Saturday comes. It's the Sabbath and Jesus is going to synagogue. And he taught. The Son of God opens the Word of God and teaches the truth of the Word of God. And people are just astonished. Could you imagine what it would be like to hear Jesus teach the Word, teaching the Word? At the end of the book of Luke, um, the disciples marveled as Jesus taught the Word of God. And here, he comes back to his hometown, he teaches the Word of God. People are astonished. We expect that people are astonished in a good way, but not so much. Jesus is met with unbelief. And you find right off the bat why they rejected him. And it's, it's amazing to, to read. It's just a bunch of ad hominem attacks or attacks against him. The people don't say anything about what Jesus said, but rather who they think he is. And that kind, you kind of get that idea from that. Well, who does this guy think he is? Coming here teaching like that. Where does he get this stuff? What wisdom is he going on about? What are these mighty works? He's the carpenter. He's a carpenter. He learned how to do carpentry from um, from Joseph. And here he is, this carpenter coming in here and saying all this stuff, doing these things. Well, we know his brothers and his sisters that live here. His sisters are still right here among us. Who's this guy think he is? It all had to do, but none of it had to do with what Jesus said. Jesus, obviously, taught them the truth as no man taught. And the last time we were in the synagogue, or the first time in the Gospel of Mark, we were in the synagogue, people were amazed at the way he taught. What authority. He wasn't like the scribes who just repeated what they read in the commentaries, but he taught as one with authority from God. Now the people hear this and What's the deal with this guy? He, he's a carpenter. Who does he think he is? Not what he was saying. A lot of people will have that same issue today. They don't deal with what the scriptures say but they'll they'll say uh, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to listen because of this reason. Or I'm not going to listen to what is said at the church because the church uh, did me wrong back in 1972 and and I, I just can't bear what people will say. Somebody told me yesterday they invited somebody to church and they said, I can't go to church because I don't like chunky peanut butter. And the guy just looked at him and said, what do you mean you can't go to church because you don't like chunky peanut butter? He said, what's that got to do with anything? And he said, oh, I don't know. One excuse is as good as another. <laughs> and he said, so that, that's my excuse. But that's what people have. They have excuses that they make up. And, uh, but they don't deal with what the truth of the scriptures say. They didn't deal with what Jesus actually said. They said they deal with what they, you know, a prejudice against him because he was from Nazareth. And they were offended. To them, Christ was a stumbling block. They were scandalized at the fact they're going to listen to Jesus. I'm not going to listen to Jesus because I remember whenever he was a boy. I'm not going to listen to Jesus because I know his mother. I'm not going to listen to Jesus because I, I grew up with Joseph and and uh, he built my front porch. I'm not going to listen to him. It has nothing to do with the truth of the matter, though. Any, any reason, any excuse not to hear the word of God. Well, Jesus told him that a prophet is not without honor, but his own country and among his own kin and his own house. So Jesus speaks this proverb, and it's generally true that um, generally true anyway that a person might have a hard time going back to his, whole, um, his old hometown to be heard. But it's more than that. It's more than just a proverb. It's just more than someone coming back to their hometown and, and running for mayor or something like that. This is a prophet. That's the, the key of it here, a prophet. Jesus calls himself a prophet. A prophet of God should be an office that people honor and take heed to. A prophet is a man that God has chosen to speak God's word. Some of the most popular names still today are named after God's prophets. People still name their children Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Isaiah. Um, People... Honor the prophets. Those are good, strong names, right? We're going to honor the prophets. We thank a lot of the prophets. We're going to build statues to the prophets. We're going to talk about how great the prophets were. But Jesus said that they honored the prophets now, that they're dead, but if they were alive, they wouldn't listen to them. And Jesus is proof of that, and John is proof of that, that the prophets of God came to the people of God. So it didn't matter if Jesus came to Nazareth or or not. He came to his people and his people would not hear him. They received him not. The prophet gets no honor among the people of God. Even when God said, I'm going to send a prophet among you. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you and there's a long list of scriptures that you can go through in first and second kings, second chronicles and read the fate of the prophets. Prophets that not just uh, the the big names that that we are super familiar with, but some prophets only had one prophecy before they went to jail or lost their life. They were persecuted. This is more again more than just a, a proverb. This is um, this was foretold in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. It talks about um, talks about the prophet. The Lord thy God will raise up in thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord and thy God in Horeb, the day of the assembly. Let me not hear against. The voice of the Lord my God neither let me see this great fire any more. And the Lord said unto me, They have spoken well that they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I have commanded. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet which shall presume to speak in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou shalt say in thy heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if a thing followeth not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. So the Lord said to the people of Israel, Remember whenever I came to the mountain, and you said, We can't stay the voice of the Lord. Let's send somebody else. And, And then Moses spoke for them. Well, God said, I'm going to send another prophet just like you. One who is going to speak my words to the people. I will raise up thee a prophet in the midst of thee. The Lord thy God will raise up thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren. But he says, like unto me. So From the house of Israel would arise a prophet. And they weren't to say, well, he comes from Israel, he comes from my hometown, so I'm not going to listen to him, or I can't listen to him because he doesn't come from where I think he ought to come from. No, they are to listen to this prophet. Because he's going to be speaking the words. And that was going to be the blessing that this prophet, the prophet, the prophet of prophets is going to rise up from among them. That's a blessing, not a curse, not a stumbling block. And he's going to speak the words of the Lord. But they say, Well, what how will we know? How will we know if this isn't just some goofball who comes along and, and says, Well, I'm the prophet, you have to do everything I have to say. Because I'm a prophet. And people do that today, don't they? They say, Well, I got a word from the Lord, so you have to listen to me. Well. How do I know if you have a word of the Lord? Well, in the Old Testament times, in, in Jesus' day, uh, how would they know? Well, What's the word of God say? Well, if a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the things follow not or come to pass, then you don't have to pay attention to them. If the prophet says something's going to happen and, it's not gonna, and it doesn't happen, actually, that's the death penalty, and he said you don't have to worry about anything they say. Because my prophets won't lie. My prophets are going to be 100% accurate all the time. So how are they supposed to judge the prophet? By where he came from? Only in the sense that does he come from Israel. But they weren't supposed to reject him because of that. They were supposed to be clued in that, oh yeah, this is what the Lord says. So someone rises up from the house of Israel and says, I am of God. How do you judge? Well, you judge by what He says. Judge by the words he says. Not the way that he looks, not if not for the personal attacks or any such thing. But the, the prophet would come, he would give the signs of the prophet, and he would declare, Thus saith the Lord. And if what he says is true, then you gotta listen to him. If that's the test. Is what he says true? Well, the people in Nazareth didn't care about what he said but how he said it and where he was from. They didn't take the test of the prophet and apply it to the Lord Jesus, for if they had believed Deuteronomy 18, if they would have believed the word of God, then they would have set their heart to believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus told the dead to rise. He told the storm to stop blowing. He taught with great authority. He came in the name of God. And what did the people say? I don't like where he came from. And so, with all this, Jesus marvels at their unbelief. That's what the text tells us. He just marvels. Not in a good way, right? They were astonished and not in a good way. Jesus marvels and not in a good way. He marveled how the plain truth was set before them, fulfilling the plain word of God. The word of God was opened up by the prophet of God, and the people heard it and rejected it. Not because it was untrue not because it was contrary to the scripture, just because they just they just didn't like it. The natural heart here is dead in trespasses and sins, both unwilling and unable to see the plain spiritual truth right, set right before their eyes. Someone who raises the dead, someone who heals the sick, someone who causes the wind and the seas to obey his very word, Someone who preaches the truth to come right before them. And they knew Jesus. Jesus was not a notorious sinner. You know, somebody might, I might go back to my hometown and say, well, I remember him when he was a kid. I'm listen to him. He was a scoundrel. He was a, he was a terrible little child. No one could say that about Jesus. There was nothing Jesus had ever done that would cause anyone not to believe add that to the fact his own people didn't believe what he said when he said the truth according to the scripture and in alliance with the test of the scripture we see the hard heart of unbelief so Jesus does no miracles there it says that he could do no mighty work save he laid hands upon him and so the way that's written some might say well that means faith is what gives Jesus the power to do miracles and because Jesus couldn't because people didn't believe then Jesus didn't have the power to do the miracles. But that's not what that means. Faith is not the object that gives Jesus the power. But rather without faith there's no point in doing the miracles to start with. Marshall said a miracle leads nowhere if it's not received in in faith. Because at the end of verse number 2, they already knew that he did miracles. And what wisdom is this, which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. So it's not that Jesus, if he would have just done some miracles, they would have believed. Jesus gives no miracles because why would he? Why would he heal the sick in a display of his mighty power when they've already rejected him knowing that he's already done the miracles. Their case against him was not that Jesus couldn't do miracles. Their case against him was, who does this guy think he is doing all these miracles? They they already knew he did. And they rejected him. It wasn't, you know, when people will, will say something like, if God would give me a sign, then I would believe. Well, that's not true. Because the people in Nazareth, they said, give me a sign so I can use it to reject you even more. They already knew he did miracles, so why would he do more miracles? Why would he cast his pearls before the swine who would not believe? And so some came and they did come to him by faith and, and Jesus laid hands upon them and, and healed them. But by and large, people would not come to him. Even though they knew he, he had the power to heal, they rejected him and would not they would not come to him, they would not believe so with the rejection of the prophet we get this foreboding sense that things are not going like we thought they were going to go things, Jesus is not going to come and then all the world come to him but he comes back home and is rejected his own people um, reject him disbelief Despite all the proof, the people have rejected Jesus and there is no faith. Well, Jesus calls the twelve and he sends them out two by two. And they go out fulfilling the requirements of a witness, testifying of Jesus. And Jesus communicates power to them. So they have power over the unclean spirits. He gives them the mission to do. He gives them the power to do it. These men weren't special. They're were just ordinary guys, but they were empowered by christ and so the people attack christ for who he was but the disciples were not something special they just go out in his name and so here's more testimony that those who go in the name of christ have the power to do what he says so all the glory points to back to jesus not these men so when they go in the name of christ and cast out demons and and preach the gospel, they said, Well, who sent you? Well, Jesus of Nazareth has sent us. Jesus told them not to take anything but a staff. Now that puts me in the mind of an Old Testament prophet. Even today, if somebody's walking along with a big staff, someone might ask them if they really think of a prophet walking along like Moses. This symbol, I think, of prophets and under shepherds going out in the name of God, doing the work of God. And so they go out with this staff preaching and doing the work God had called them to. They weren't to take any money or supplies, put on their shoes, get dressed, put on their shoes, get their staff, and and go out to work. God's going to provide for them through the mercy of the people who will hear them. But again, more ominous tones. Because he says, there's going to be people who don't receive you. There's going to be people who won't hear you. What do you do then? Well, Jesus did no mighty works in um, Nazareth because the people rejected him. and Jesus well, so what do the disciples do? Did the disciples stay there and just keep on despite their protestations and, and go on? No, Jesus says if they won't receive you, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. you're not going to be universally loved. People who carry the message of the king will be rejected. People won't believe. And Jesus told his disciples, and when that happens, just go on. But know this, it's going to be worse for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than cities that won't hear the word of God and receive, men, and receive God's men. We know Sodom and Gomorrah for their great wickedness and how God judged them. But you know what would be worse? Than to be the hometown of the of the Lord Jesus, uh, of the King of Kings, and to treat him with disdain and dishonor and reject him, or to be a town where the ambassadors of the King come and preach the gospel and they reject it. Jesus said, "You'd been better off at the day of judgment to be a citizen of Sodom than you would to be a citizen of Nazareth." Or any other such city who will not hear the word of God and believe in the the name of the King. So they go out as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel. Jesus and John in chapter 1 preach repentance. The disciples go out in verse 12 and preach that men should repent. Jesus is rejected, John was executed. The disciples are now going to preach that message of repentance. Preaching good news to a hostile world. People will gladly receive healings. They'll gladly receive material blessings. You know, if the church gave out gifts to everybody that came every week, people would gladly attend all the time to get all that they could. But man is opposed to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what man is against. And so the model, the seeker-sensitive model of church, where they say, well, let's get sinners in any way we can, and then once they're here with all of our goodies, then we can preach the gospel to them. That's not how Jesus did things. Jesus could have performed miracles. He could, he could draw a crowd however he wanted to. But if they would not hear the word... He was not going to um, do a a bait and switch here. And he told the the disciples, if they won't hear the word, go on to the next place. But preach the gospel. Preach, Preach repentance. Preach faith. Our society will tolerate just about anything besides the scripture. We're disciples of Christ. And as church members, you've been given a calling to go and tell others about the love of Jesus. And when you do that, you also are going to be met with people rejecting the message, not listening to you, getting mad at you, hating you, because it is the message of repentance and faith in Christ. We can't be surprised by that. We can marvel at it because we have good news, but apart from God's grace, it won't be received as good news. The message of life, eternal life, and the forgiveness of sins is met with hostility to sinners. So the there was unbelief, Jesus sends out the twelve, and then now we flash we go to another place, we go to the palace. We have unbelief in the palace. So rumors were circulating around that something was going on. The fame of the Lord Jesus Christ was reaching everywhere. Some people said it's Elijah. Elijah's come, just like the Old Testament said that he would. Which was actually referring to John the Baptist. Herod, though, said, no, it's not Elijah. It's not a prophet. It's John the Baptist. He's come back from the dead. And he's come back to get me. Well, we leave the the disciples are out on their first mission preaching the gospel. and, And with all that... Without that warning, we're wondering what's going to happen to them out by themselves. So we, we find out what happened to John. Elijah's mentioned often in the book of Mark. And that's a theme, that's a thread that runs through this whole book, either explicitly or indirectly. Um, Elijah's mentioned, so here he's mentioned again. And so John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, as we know. And his life reminds us of his ministry. Who was Elijah's arch nemesis? Remember who that was? It was King Ahab and, and Jezebel, wasn't it? And King Ahab was king of Israel, but he was also um, kind of ruled around by his wife. Um, a, a very wicked woman, Jezebel. King Ahab hated Elijah, but Jezebel hated him more, and she manipulated her husband to have Elijah killed because Elijah called out the king. And so we see that same motif here as with John the Baptist, Herod, and Herodias, a prophet of God who calls out the wicked king and his wife and calls them to repentance. But they're not met with a humble, penitent attitude. but they ha- that He is met with hatred just like Elijah was. And so bringing in Elijah and John the Baptist coming in the spirit of Elijah, and we see this set up that that and Jesus talked about the prophet, the prophet, how the prophets are met. So all this is is coming. From, you know, we got all this in mind with the Old Testament. And so John the Baptist was a prophet. And you think, well, what happened about John? Jesus said that prophets aren't are, are met with um, aren't met with love in their own country. What about John? Oh yeah, John, who comes like Elijah, meets with the prophets' doom, uh, like the prophets of the Old Testament. And this is really, really messed up. This whole situation was messed up. Herodias was the daughter of Herod the... Um, the daughter of the son of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great had uh, several boys. And Herodias was the daughter um, of one of those boys. Herod and Philip were also sons of the Herod the Great. So this Herod is the son of Herod the Great. So it was Philip... So was Herodias, but they had, um, or so was Herodias' uh, dad. So um, Philip and Herod had different moms. And so what this all means is that Herod and Philip, or Philip married his niece, and then Herod married his niece who was married to his brother, and probably at the same time. So Herodias is Philip's wife and Herod's wife and both of their nieces. So that's how messed up this whole situation is. And, and that's why it says it in verse 17 and 18, it says it twice. Like, if you didn't get it the first time, i won't tell you what happened the second time, because this is really what happened. This was a, you know, just the whole scene is full of incestuous, creepy... Uh, Especially when Herodias comes in, Herodias' daughter comes in and starts dancing for her stepdad and all of his buddies. I mean, the whole thing is gross. And we can see why John preached against it. This is wickedness. It's, uh, It's forbidden from the book of Leviticus. And John said as much. John didn't go and say, well, to each his own or love is love or any such thing. He said, no, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this and he preached against sin. Not because John was a hard man, but because he called people unto repentance. He called them to turn from their sin and trust in the living God. Well, Herod and Herodias didn't meet this message with repentance and faith. Herod doesn't pay any attention to what John says, but he does respect him and listen to him. And that's the mind-boggling thing to me, where the, the text says that he feared John knowing that he was a just and holy man and observed him when he heard him and did many things and heard him gladly. John says, that's wicked. He said, boy, that's a good message, preacher. I always, do like to, always do like to listen to John the Baptist preach. And the funny thing is, the people in Nazareth rejected Jesus for what he said. Herod, like John the Baptist, probably because of the way he said it, because John's dressed in the camel skin and such and 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 Herod probably says, "Boy, I like to hear that wild man preach. I like to hear that guy. He looks like a prophet. He sounds like a prophet. I, I sure do like to hear John the Baptist preach. We didn't listen to a word he said. He just he liked the outward form. so so nazareth and and in the palace, It wasn't what he was saying so much that they believed, but Herod just liked the way, and the the other people didn't like um, uh, Jesus where he grew up. Herodias, on the other hand, she did listen to John, and she hated him because of what he said. And it didn't matter what he looked like or where he came from. She just hated what he said, and she doesn't want him to hear. She doesn't want to hear John. She doesn't want anybody else to hear John. She wants him dead. So now it's Herod's birthday, and it's not the cake and ice cream kind of affair. This was uh, reeks of paganism and debauchery. So you take that incestuous marriage, and then the stepdaughter dancing, and the whole thing is just rotten to the core. And so Herod and his, uh, his, Herod goes and says, I'll, well, I'll give you whatever you want. And she goes and talks it over with her mom. Now, mothers, if your daughter comes and tells you what just happened here, Think about what you would do. Well, I'm sure Herod probably wouldn't have much life left in him, would he? If, if you found out what was going on there in the palace and, and the daughter comes and say, Hey, listen what stepdad told me. But what's Herodias do? Instead of being outraged, she uses that to her advantage and says, Okay, go back and ask him for John the Baptist's head. It's so so wicked. Well, Herod ran his mouth in front of his friends and made a rash vow. and Now he feels trapped. And this is one of those things where people say, well, I can't, I can't go back on my word. My word is my bond. This guy, who married his brother's wife, who married his niece, who had his stepdaughter in this party doing whatever she was doing, now he's a moral man. Now, now he can't go back on his vow, because we all know Herod's, Herod, uh, he's nothing, he's, a, he's a, the epitome of, of morality. No, he doesn't want to look bad in front of his buddies. He doesn't want to back down. And so he's going to use this as an excuse, Why I, my hands are tied, I, there's nothing I can do. Even though there are ways that a person could ask for repentance and offer sacrifice for rash vows in the, the Old Testament, he would rather have somebody murdered than to look bad or weak in front of his buddies. So he had John the Baptist murdered. Practically speaking, you can see how much trouble you can get into when you start down going down the wrong road. You can see how what caring about what other people think about you is a dangerous trap, and even being involved in such situations is a dangerous trap. You can see... What a blessing it is to be married to a virtuous woman as opposed to a wicked spouse. But this whole scene foreshadows the cross. John was handed over just like Jesus will be handed over. John was executed by a morally weak political leader who gets tangled up in these political maneuverings and did what he really didn't want to do because he feared man just like Jesus is going to. John's death casts this shadow over, uh, over this section of the book of Mark and just gives us this, this, this foreboding that something bad is about to happen. People are not going to hear this message. He's not met with, with joy and celebration, but met with death and persecution and hatred. Well, John comes, his disciples, they take him and lay him in the tomb. Well, finally, we come to the return of the twelve. And and now they're not the twelve, they're not the disciples. In verse 30, they're the apostles. An apostle is a sent ambassador. They were Jesus' official representatives. They're the sent ones of Jesus. He commissioned the work, told them what to say, gave them the power to do it. And they come back and they tell Jesus what had happened. But... But far from being an office that brings benefits in this life, the flashback from John shows us the way of Christ is the way of the cross. It's not the wealth, way of wealth and health and prosperity. It's the way of suffering. It's the way of shame. It's the way of persecution oftentimes. And so what Jesus does, he tells them, Come ye unto yourselves apart to a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going they had no leisure as much to eat. So Jesus cares for his apostles. He cares for his men. He's not a cruel taskmaster. The work of the Lord is not grievous. But he said, come and rest. Take some time to rest your body because you've been doing this work and people were pressing upon you, rest a while. He he cared for his people. Jesus is compassionate. Men have the tendency to be more hard taskmasters than the Lord Jesus was. What a great Savior we have He truly cares for his people. So in this section we see the natural man is this enmity against God. They hate the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the pride of man and the fear of man... Pride, not, they're not going to believe somebody that they, they saw when he was a boy. I'm not going to believe that. Pride in, well, I'm not going to defend John the Baptist's life because that would make me look bad in front of my buddies. The work of the Lord will accomplish his will. So, remember, our call is to faithfulness, not to success. But the sovereignty of God should not make us cold to unbelievers or apathetic because even Jesus marveled at their unbelief. They didn't stop the work. They knocked the, shoes off, the dust off their shoes and went on in faithful obedience because we have a kind and compassionate friend in the Lord Jesus worthy of our love, faith, and obedience. And so we have a message that we know from the start people are not going to like, that people will reject because they rejected our Lord. They rejected John the Baptist. They rejected the apostles. And they'll continue to do so. But our duty is to go and to tell those, because there's sheep out there, there are God's people out there, even though there may be few, who will hear that message and believe. Ours is just to go out and carry the message. And, and, and we, should not, we should not be surprised when people don't believe it. But we should be very um, adamant in our, in our uh, carrying on the work for the Lord's sake.